All right, we're going to Matthew 5. We're in the middle of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's a a series of teaching that Jesus gave on the coming kingdom of God and that he was the king. And so we're in the middle of that, and he's going to talk about specifically about our role in that kingdom. In verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. We are continuing our study. I have to admit that this morning's uh, message uh, comes from a country music song by the Bellany Brothers. The, the song has a particular line in it that I have seen in some uh, bumper stickers that go like this. Lord, help me be the kind of person my dog thinks I am. Now, that fits every country music song that I have ever heard. But it does illustrate a tragic reality about our lives. That is, there seems to be a gap between who we think we are and who we really are. There seems to be a gap between the way others perceive us and the way we perceive ourselves and the way that we really are. But what we've been doing for the last 10 weeks is we've been asking God from Scripture, who does he think we are? That is, who are we really? Can we get an understanding of our identity apart from what we think we are and what others think we are into who we really are. And so as we've progressed week by week, looking at who we are in Christ, we come to another description. And what this text does for us, at least for me, helps me get out of bed in the morning, particularly on cold mornings when I would rather stay in than come. Rather than talking further about our guilt and our shame, our sin. There's something here in this text that is very profound and produces joy if believed. Notice that Jesus did not say, you will be the salt of the earth at some point in the near future. He did not say, you will be the light of the world at some future time. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. This means it's a present reality, not a future aspiration. Therefore, you and I are not to worry about what our dog thinks about us. We are not to be concerned with how others think about us or even what we think about ourselves. Only what God thinks about us. Our new identity 
is defined in Christ. But one particular way is in our relationship to the world. And so this morning, I want us to think in two clusters, four ideas. Four big ideas bracketed in two clusters. Union and communion, glory and irony. Our union with Christ, our communion with the world, that's one cluster. Then the glory of God and the irony of the gospel be the second one. So if you, in your mind, if, if you've got that, then we're ready. That's the map in which I hope for us to go from this text. First, our union with Christ and our communion with the world. Our union with Christ has two simple metaphors here. Salt and light. Jesus uses very simplistic, very common, every run of the day metaphors for what he's going to describe as our identity in Christ. The reason he does that is so that we, everyone who hears salt and light, have a common understanding about how we are being compared or the way in which our identity is to be defined. Salt is something we use every day. Light is something that is in every home, in every business, and every church. Jesus is using these common metaphors, these common elements, to say something profound about the agents of change that we are. You might not think of yourself as an agent of change. In fact, you might be opposed to change altogether. But God sees you as an agent of change because of the metaphors that he is using here to describe our identity in Christ as salt and light. What's the basis for this uh, new identity, this basis, this confident assertion that Jesus makes that you are the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, is our unity, our union with Christ. And that has changed everything about us and our relationship to the world in which we live. We have to remember that it is God who took the first step in both creation and redemption. So if you think of human history... As in two categories, creation and redemption, God is the initiator in both. God is the one who makes the first step in creation because he created us good. He created us in his own image, giving us human dignity and value. And because he takes the first step in redemption... He's reconciling all things to himself. Even while we were running from him, he was pursuing us. We don't tend to think of it that way, but that's exactly what we were doing. Our best of running from him in order to keep control of our world, he had to pursue us. He is claiming for himself us through Jesus. This is what John Calvin would say. The most beautiful truth about the gospel is our union with Christ. Because Jesus not only entered a relationship with us, which we emphasize in the modern era, 
But in Calvin's time, they emphasized that he united us to himself to such a degree that his record became our own. Do you hear that? In the 20th century, in the 21st century, really beginning in the 19th century, in the Second Great Awakening, an emphasis of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ became the emphasis of the gospel. And though that is true, it is only true to the degree that we have been united with Christ. That is the ground upon which you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because your record before God has been altered. It has been so radically changed, you can't even call it your record. It is the record of Jesus Christ that I bear. And so when the Father sees me, He does not see my sin any longer. He now sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. To the degree that Paul will say... He who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness from God. We carry the righteousness of Christ and therefore we are the righteousness from God. Let that truth come all the way in. Let it begin to marinate your heart. That when God sees you, he sees good. Not because he just created you good but He redeemed you good because of Christ. Let it seep into your soul that your identity is not to be defined by what you have done, what I have done, but let it be defined by what He has done. And that He will never leave you. He will never forsake you, no matter what. We know that. We know the promise that's given in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of time. The union with Christ is our basis for the extreme makeover of our identities as Christians. We become radically new because we have been united with Christ to the degree that we carry the record of Christ. That's why Martin Luther said, You are not who you once were, nor are you what you will ultimately be, but all in Christ have been changed. And therefore, your trajectory has been set and it cannot be altered by you or God. Because if God changed your trajectory, then he would be a liar and he would have to repent. And we know that God is not a liar that he has to repent. Has he not said and will he not do it? Now think about salt and light for just a moment. What was salt used for in the first century? It enhanced the flavor of the meat in which it was used. It brought out the flavor, the richness, and the texture of what we were eating in the first century. It preserved the freshness. Now you can imagine if you hunted and and you brought it back, how did they 
protect the freshness of the meat or watch it decay. They applied salt and really packed it in salt. And therefore, it prevented the decay of the meat in which it was used. But it was also a cleanser. That is that you got a piece of of meat that has aged. and, And not only does it bring back flavor, but you can actually clean it with the salt that is used. What is light? It is something that dispels the darkness and reveals the reality that was already there. It enables us to see the path in which we are to take. It is the basis for human survival and flourishing. Now, imagine yourself, not in the first century, but today, without salt or light. Some of you have been ordered to give up salt. That's not normal, just so you know. It's in order because your health is dependent upon you having less sodium than you already do. The reason you and I cannot imagine life without salt and light is because we weren't supposed to. And that's the point. Here's Jesus' point by using salt and light. You and I are to be as indispensable to our world, to our community, to our city, to our neighborhoods, to our work, as salt and light are to our very lives. Wherever He has placed you, wherever He has placed me, we are to be indispensable there. We think that sometimes that we want to make ourselves indispensable in here. That's not what we are called to be indispensable. We come here to worship and to receive the food that God has us to eat. But then we are called out into the world to be indispensable there. The world needs salt and light. And you and I have been called to be salt and light. See how it works? The world needs salt and light. And you and I have been called to be that salt and light in our world. Amen? Communion. If the basis for our identity is our union with Christ, it's not to no end. Our text says if salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor can you put a lamp under a basket. The purpose of salt and light is to be used for the sake of the other. That is, salt is not for itself. Light is not for itself. It's for the other. It exists for others. Therefore, our identity is in with communion with others. Therefore, you and I cannot be the focus. Only Jesus can. There's no place in Christianity for selfishness or self-absorption. Because that makes the self the focus rather than Jesus. If salt is to enhance, it's not enhancing itself. If salt is to prevent decay, it's not to prevent its own decay. If salt is to cleanse, it's not to cleanse itself. 
That's God's work. What happens when salt does its job? You ever thought about that? This is just water. It's good. But if I take it and put it in the water, what does it do, you chemist? It dissolves, right? Have a drink. No, 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 no. Drink it. disappears in its communion with the water, with whatever it comes in contact with, it disappears. But it doesn't lose the flavor. True? It doesn't lose its flavor. It just becomes part of what it's communing with. That's how it becomes indispensable. We want to separate the salt from what it's supposed to come in contact with. We want to build the walls. We want to have our, our, our uh, cloister. We want the cul-de-sac of Christianity when God meant Christianity to be in the world and be dissolved because it was used up. Not because it's a threat to Christianity, but because the world needs salt. Think about light. I lit these at the beginning of the worship service at, at 8.15, I mean 8 o'clock. Man, they were almost gone by now. But they will be soon. Because the purpose of light is to be used up. So that others can see. And see the path. This is our calling for Jesus' sake. This is what C.S. Lewis said. Christianity is like the sun. Not only does it show everything in its proper light, but it is through it everything can be seen. Do you hear that? Not only can you see by the light, but everything in it can see everything else. That's what he says. We reflect the source of our light, and by this light, everything can be seen. And be seen by everything else as it truly is. Our union with Christ gives us our identity as salt and light. And because of this identity, we can enter into communion with the world, our city, our neighborhood, and our workplace. In the first century, people didn't become Christians because they hated the world. But because of the love of God and their love for their neighbor. Nevertheless, this love sometimes left them at odds with their society. Tim Keller says the, the early church surely looked like it was on the wrong side of history with a dogged adherence to the biblical gospel. Now, you know you got a great sermon going when you quote Calvin and Luther, Lewis and now Keller. The Romans thought Christians were idiots. 
Yet Christianity remains and the Roman Empire has gone the way of the dodo bird. We must not become like our culture. If we become like our culture, they don't hear the gospel. And if we become like our culture, we will lose our saltiness and our light will go out. But let's admit this. Being salt and light in the American culture is daunting and often exhausting. And yet we are being called to be faithfully present wherever God has placed us. Whatever neighborhood we live, whatever workplace we work, whatever group or club we belong. And therefore you and I are supposed to speak truth and love wherever we talk about human dignity and human identity injustice and racism, immigration, sexual assault and harassment, education, consumerism, greed, singleness, adoption, and marriage. The gospel speaks to all of those issues. To give our opinion, who cares? To give God's opinion, the world should care. We should care less about what the world thinks about us and more about what our world thinks about God. And how in the world are they going to know about our God if they don't know us? If we are not speaking truth in love. Let me give you an example of this. It's a story that's been around a long time about a little boy. There was a king who who had heard about these two incredible seamstress who could make unbelievable clothes. And so he went to these seamstress and he, and he paid them a large sum of money to make the best clothes for him, the king, to wear. And they thought that we're not really seamstress. But they couldn't let him know that. And so they, they acted like they made some clothes. They put it on a, a, a mannequin. And when he came to see, they told him, these are the best clothes we have ever made. Can you not see them, king? Of course I can. Because he didn't want to admit he could not see what they had made. And so he made these clothes. He put on these clothes and he began to walk down the street. And everybody said, those are the best clothes we have ever seen. Except for this young little boy who said the emperor has no clothes. Do you not see the parallel of what we as Christians are called as salt and light? We are to say to the emperor, you have no clothes. Because not only does he know something is wrong, but because he doesn't want to be embarrassed about it, he never admits to himself that what is wrong. I think that's what we do. We come in and graciously, lovingly, supportively remind them what we're seeing and what is going on in our culture is not just harmful or wrong, but people are being hurt and destroyed. Lives are being ruined. But not stop there, but talk about a life that is meant to be flourishing, a human endeavor of truth and beauty 
in God through Christ. So that brings us to glory and irony, the glory of God and the irony of the gospel. In the same way, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give you glory to the Father who is in heaven. He must increase. I must decrease. For the world to see Jesus, we must become less. I'm talking about the calculus of the Christian experience. If Jesus is going to be seen in our community, then we, and I'm talking about EP as well, we must become less so that He might be more. You have been united, I have been united with Jesus, and He is with us wherever we go. And therefore, it is not our lives that we live in this world any longer. When we became Christians, what that means is we gave up our determination of our desires and dreams and hopes. And instead, we took the the hopes and the dreams and the desires of the one we follow. We know that because that's what Paul said when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the one who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Paul is saying the old Saul died on the cross with Jesus. The new Paul, the, the, the missionary to the Gentiles rose. A new identity. And therefore you and I live in the ordinary and the extraordinary For the glory of God, not the glory of of E.P. or the glory of Bruce. This is our calling. And it is born out of our union with Christ and our calling to the communion with the world. What's the irony of the gospel? The irony of the gospel is that the mission of Jesus is accomplished through death. And it's death on a cross. The disciples followed Jesus for three years and he kept talking about this coming kingdom and that he was going to be the king of this coming kingdom. And so what happens to this new king? He dies. A helpless victim at the hands of the present kingdom on a scandalous cross. The irony is that the one who came to bring glory found glory on a cross. And that you and I are called to follow him there. And that irony. He wishes to save his life, we'll lose it. And who loses his life for Christ's sake, will find it. Those are incredibly comforting words. Because the one who uttered them is alive and reigns. But they're incredibly challenging words. Because he is calling us to come and die. That's what Bonhoeffer said. That when God bids someone to come, he, he bids him to come and die. But how are we to see the world? How are we to relate to the people who don't yet believe? We don't isolate them. We don't run from them. I think Abraham Lincoln gave us the words in his first inaugural address on March the 4th. 1861, battles had already started in the Civil War by the time he became president. He stood up and said, we are not enemies, but friends. We must not become enemies, 
Though passions will strain, it must not break the bonds of our affection. Those words are just as true today as they were 150 years ago. Those who do not yet believe are not our enemies. And you and I need to stop speaking and acting as if they are. No matter how much the passions will strain, it must not break the bonds of our affections for them. You and I are the salt and the light where God has planted us. And as we leave this worship service, we enter into the communion with our city. Remember, you have been united to Christ, therefore you do not go alone. And that that union points to the glory of God in the irony of the gospel. Be indispensable in your neighborhoods. Be indispensable in the government of our city. Be indispensable in the relationships that work. Be indispensable to your employers. Because God has planted you there. And He's called you to be salt and light. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You that You have made us not only union with Christ, but You have called us into communion with the world in which You have placed us. We believe You're sovereign. It's not an accident we were born here. We grew up here. We have work here. We have friendships here. We have neighbors here. Those are all appointments in which we might be the salt and the light. That we might bring to bear the truth and the beauty and the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know, Father, that can be incredibly daunting as some people will reject us. And it also can be exhausting because it may not be well received. But we pray, Heavenly Father, that the world knows more about you than they know about us. That they might give you the glory because not only of what we have said, but the works we have done for the sake of Christ who is with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.